Hi there, this is Nicolette Richet, your host of the Eat Real to Heal podcast. If you or someone you know has been diagnosed with a chronic degenerative disease and you've tried everything, every diet, therapy, medication, surgery, treatment, and you still can't get results, then this is the podcast for you. My guests, the research that we present, and my personal stories of helping hundreds of clients cancel surgeries, get off prescription medications, and even reverse their debilitating illnesses will inspire you to reclaim your health and to take back your life. Everything you learned in this podcast is about using organic, plant-strong, whole foods as medicine to reverse hundreds of so-called incurable chronic degenerative diseases. This podcast is a mix of real healing hero stories and in-depth conversations with leading scientists and doctors in the nutritional medicine realm. Sit back, get comfortable, and enjoy. Welcome everyone. I am Nicolette Richet, CEO and founder of Green Mustache Holding Companies, which is made up of five different companies. Green Mustache is a chain of plant-based whole food, 100% organic, um, unprocessed restaurants. And we currently have seven locations with Port Moody set to open up um, in the middle of December. So that's coming up in the next few days, depending on when you listen to this podcast. Um, We also have Richer Health Consulting as well, which is the work we do to teach people how to eat to beat disease. So when we say eat to beat, we actually mean to actually reverse their chronic degenerative diseases and we use food as medicine to do that and we've been teaching this metabolic nutritional therapy for well over a decade actually been involved in this work for over 22 years and have thousands of case studies um, of clients who've been able to heal themselves fully so we know what it's like to work in the medical system I'm sitting here right now in Pepperton British Columbia in our wellness center which is our newest endeavor and this is a place that sleeps 12 um, incredible individuals who come to learn all about eating real to heal and so you, when you come to our wellness center you stay with us for three days and we take you through the entire art and science of turning your kitchen into your local pharmacy so you can get off drugs cancel surgeries so you can reverse chronic degenerative diseases Um, and that really includes everything from infertility and skin disorders and autoimmune disorders heart disease type 2 diabetes Um, I've worked with lots of people with brain issues um, brain tumors and today I have a very special guest and that's Claire Sneeman from Vancouver British Columbia and she is here today on our podcast to talk about her experience in the medical system when she got diagnosed with a brain tumor and the whole before and after story around that. Claire has an incredible TEDx talk, um, a beautiful blog. Uh, We'll provide all the links below at the end of this podcast so that you can connect with her. Um, She's an author. She's written two incredible books called Two Steps Forward and Activate, How to Save Your Life in a Complex Healthcare System. She is a mom of a 12-year-old son, Aiden, who loves hockey. Um, And Claire was diagnosed with a brain tumor back in May of 2010 when she was only 34 years old. So we're going to jump into talking with Claire. Welcome, Claire. It is such a pleasure to have you on our Eat Real to Heal podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me here today. I'm so glad that we could connect. 
Wonderful. So um, for those who've never come across Claire's website, blog, or her books, um, really we're going to use this opportunity because it's our first podcast together. I have a feeling we're going to be doing a few more podcasts together because <laughs> there is so much incredible information just in her TED Talk alone, let alone all the books, the two books that she's written. Um, but for today, um, Claire, I would love for you to share your experience um, of you know, you start your TED talk with saying that um, the third leading cause of death in Canada and actually in most developed um, worlds is um, the third leading cause of death is medical error. Now, I've had direct experience with that myself with my daughter. She, when she was nine days old, she was diagnosed with mastitis, which it was the first case in British Columbia in over 26 years where an infant had mastitis. Um, wow which really perplexed the medical system. And they just went to send us home and said, don't worry about it. She's going to like heal this infection on her own, nine days old. So if we hadn't done that, the, the emergency room said she probably wouldn't have lived. So when she was nine years old, she ended up with meningitis. I mean, she'd been vaccinated for meningitis, so the doctors didn't believe she had it. They wouldn't believe when I told mm -hmm. her, told them she had pneumonia. And again, one o'clock in the morning, they unhooked her from all of these IVs and um, masks and everything after spending 12 hours in emergency after five days of battling the medical system to try and diagnose her. And they just said, mm -hmm. you know what, come back in a couple of days and see how she's doing. And again, the specialist team at Lionsgate Hospital, who actually over the phone in two minutes diagnosed her, um, got down to Lionsgate, did a spinal tap, confirmed she had meningitis, said, you know what, if we had stayed one day longer or even a few hours longer in Whistler, um, you know, she probably wouldn't be around. So I have yeah. direct experience with that, but you have such a similar story. So can you tell me, let's take the audience back to... Um, what was it before you got diagnosed? Like what were your symptoms um, and what was happening in your world um, just prior to being diagnosed? Absolutely. So, you know, going back to when I was diagnosed, if I can take the audience to like what it was, it was May 2010. Um, so as you said, I was, I was a young mother. I was a wife. My son was four years old. Um, and I was working as a full-time uh, marketing manager in a biotech company. So life was super busy, a young child, working hard. And um, I woke up one morning and the room was completely spinning. I, I was in bed. I woke up. The room was spinning around me. The lights were spinning. And I was like, what is going on? And I felt sick to my stomach. So I got out of bed. And as I got out of bed, I could barely stand up. So I stumbled to the bathroom and I felt like I was going to be ill. So I got to the washroom and I thought, God, there must be some virus going around or something's going on. And um, my son was downstairs with my husband. It was the wee hours of the morning. And I, I wasn't ill, but I, I went back to bed and I thought, I can't get out of bed. I, I can't even stand up properly. And I called down to my husband and I said, something is wrong. I think I'm overdoing it at work. I've picked up something. I, I can't even get out of bed. You're going to have to take Aiden to school, to daycare. Um, I'm calling in sick. And after the vertigo subsided, I then got a headache a couple of days later. And this headache, I never got headaches before. And it really stayed with me. And so it was actually my husband who said, you need to be going to the doctor. Because these symptoms were not going anywhere. And I wanted to get back to work. So I did. I went to my doctor who said to me, you know, this onset of dizziness, this headache that you've got, I actually want you to be tested for meningitis, she said. So she sent me to the ER um, and they did, as you said, a spinal tap like your daughter had. I had a lumbar puncture and they also sent me for a CT scan 
so a CAT scan, just to check that there was nothing else going on. So, and I, so I just want to jump in here because that's yeah. pretty amazing because you went in with some pretty, pretty typical symptoms of the flu, like a lot of things what people are experiencing mm-hmm. right now in cold and flu season, but you mm-hmm. just happened to get a doctor who said, I feel like this is meningitis. Like, did you have a stiff neck? Like you couldn't... You, No, I didn't have a stiff neck, but I think, I mean, when they do the neurological exam as well, Mm -hmm. um, he may have picked up something there um, that may have been what it was. So do you think you got lucky with that particular doctor that you saw? Uh, It could have been, it could have been, but I mean, by then I was, um, I was incredibly fatigued. I was also photosensitive. So I was sensitive to light. Um, I was sensitive to sound. Uh, And as I said, I was still dizzy. I was you know, and this headache would just not go away. And my doctor did send a form to Lionsgate ahead of my arrival explaining what was going on. So that's always useful when you've got a collaboration or a communication between your GP and the hospital where you are arriving. I think that was very useful. Yeah, because in our case, it wasn't like that at all. I went in directly into Emerge saying, my daughter has a stiff spine. She can't bend her neck. She has light photosensitivity. She has, um, you know, severe headaches. She's got um, intense um, fatigue, um, lethargy, like literally every single symptom of meningitis. And then I finished and said, I actually think she has meningitis. And mm-hmm. they wrote it all down, but nobody ever read her file. Like we had 17 mm-hmm. different specialists see her, but nobody said until the very last day on the fifth day when I was like I'm not leaving emergency room ever like with a daughter this sick and I said tell me why she doesn't have meningitis so I really in that case like I just and maybe being in Vancouver it's a little bit different but I just I mean my gut feeling about this is you got lucky that you got someone who Mm -hmm. said let's run the tests so okay continue yeah and then, um, so I had the lama puncture, which actually showed that I did have a viral meningitis. Uh, so, you know, they said that should resolve in a couple of days. You need to rest. No medication is required. And, um, and then the CT scan actually showed that I had a brain tumor. And that obviously completely sideswiped everything. That was not even something that we were expecting. I don't the doctors weren't expecting it either. And it was a non-malignant brain tumor. And I remember hearing the doctors talking about outside my cubicle about this MRI or CT scan that had come through. It was a very rare, non-malignant brain tumor. They hadn't seen one in ages. And I was thinking, I remember thinking to myself, oh, that's such terrible news. I didn't realize they were talking about me. Oh, wow. Yeah. And was the tumor and the meningitis connected? Was there a link between the two? No. That no, no link at all. Luke. Yeah. Wow. It was. Goodness for the meningitis. Yep. So, um, so that's when I found out and my treatment was, uh, I saw the neurosurgeon that night as well in the ER. And, um, basically my treatment was what they call watch and wait, which is yearly MRIs to monitor the size of the tumor because, uh, the location of it, um, was the third ventricle. So it's underneath the two main hemispheres of the brain. Mm -hmm. And uh, the size of it was medium. And they rather waited to see, you know, if it was going to grow because the risks of brain surgery are not minimal. They would rather wait to see um, if it was growing versus just going in and doing surgery. So that was my treatment protocol with medications for dizziness and migraines and so forth. 
Now, I know you caught, this is when you caught one of the very first errors because after um, when you said you, so number one, you went, and we're going to get into the team approach that you describe in your book and in the TED Talk, which is Mm -hmm. um, really fantastic as well. We teach something very similar in our online course, um, which has saved people's lives. So Mm -hmm. I know that what you're doing is saving people's lives by um, sharing that team approach with people. Um, So this is when you caught one of the very first medical errors, correct? Yes. Yeah. So explain that. Yeah, so it's, uh, it is interesting because, and it's very important, I realized retrospectively to always know what somebody says versus what is written down. Because, um, for example, my sake, I was told that I would need MRIs one, you know, every single year, except when I asked for a copy of my medical report and so forth, it said um, uh, to have an MRI next year. And that's very different to once a year. So often when doctors say something versus what is written down, it's important as patients to make sure that there is a complete correlation between what is said and what is written down. Because often in the flurry or just in dictation often, um, there can be a difference. And as patients, we don't often have visibility to our medical records. Well, in fact, we don't unless we request copies of the specialist notes or whatever. So it's very important to know um, what is said and what is written down because it's important to make sure that they correlate with your understanding as well as what the doctor is intending to carry out. Very important. Yeah, and this is the first step about taking your health into your own hands. You don't need to be a medical yes. expert. You just no. need to get hold of your medical document. Document. So at the end of every appointment, lab results, test results, anything, mm-hmm. you request those copies. They're actually free if you ask for them right away um, in most cases. Yes. Um, and whether you go into an emergency room, again, because especially for emergency room um, visits, they don't keep those medical records like your doctors do. They actually dispose of them a lot sooner. Mm-hmm. So you can't go back and ask for them um, if it's been a few years later. Um, and so that's the number one thing we teach our clients to go back and get your medical records for as far back as you can remember. If you've seen 20 different doctors and specialists, go to each and every one of them because when you have that baseline information, it can mm-hmm. tell you a lot about what's happening. And we yes. tend to forget. I mean, I've had clients who forgot they even had cancer when I've met with them. And we forget that we were once unhealthy because we just love being in the present moment of like optimal health and then forget that there was a time when we were sick. But those patterns of illness um, and, you know, depths of illness, those are all really Mm -hmm. important things. So I love that um, point. Please, everybody out there, make a note of that to grab your um, medical documents. Um, and I mean, the thing is, I think it's, I think it's important for people to know that, um, you know, patients do have a legal right to get hold, as you were saying, of their health records. Um, everyone has the legal right to get hold of them. So don't, not to feel bad to ask for them um, when you're going into your GP or as you said, you know, to your, you can actually ask the hospital if you've been in the ER to get a copy of them. You may, be, um, you may have to pay for them because the doctors are actually allowed to actually charge a fee for the processing of the medical records, but you are entitled to ask for a copy of your medical records. It is your right, it's your data. It's just that the doctor holds the data so they can charge you a, printing fee or whatever it would be. But, you know, I call it the story of my brain and I, um, and my medical binder, I should, I should show you. My medical binder is this thick, okay. the story of my brain and I. But, you know, when I go to another specialist or whatever, I take my binder with me because, for example, we don't have electronic health record systems in Canada that talk to each other. So sometimes they don't have a copy of one of my MRIs, but, but I do. 
yeah. so I can show them. And that's the important, the more you know your story of your body, the yeah. more you are informed to help other people on your healthcare team. And that's the key. Exactly. And one of the things that we take it even one step further, because I mean, having that binder is fantastic, but most doctors don't have the time to go through even yes. their, your, their own tiny binder on you, let alone the big one that you've accumulated from all the yes. specialists. And yes. so we teach people how to track everything on one page. So all you have to do yep. is hand over a page. So it's like date, yep. diagnosis, treatment, prognosis, yep. Um, and then, you know, lab result outcomes, things like that, so that the doctor can look at it and see. And we had one client who did that, and she was able to go back. And the doctor looked at this one page and said, oh, my goodness, I've completely misdiagnosed you this entire time. And wow. actually, it saved her life. So these are the types of things where we can't stress how important it is to do this. So, um, And you just have this incredible real-life story about, you know, you actively doing this and figuring this out on your own that you had to do it. Yes. So. Um, one of the things too, um, to let you know, is that this also, um, for the audience out there who's listening, this happens to medical doctors, a medical doctor in our community. She has a daughter who, um, her telomeres are too short and your telomeres mm -hmm. are yeah. your longevity and your mortality. So this little girl has had health issues, you know, right from day one. And there's been times when this medical doctor has gone into her daughter's room in the hospital and looked up at the, you know, IV bag attached to her mm -hmm. daughter and said, why is my daughter getting chemo right now? And the nurse is like, well, that's what the doctor ordered. And she flips through the chart. She's like, the doctor never ordered that. So her daughter has been hooked up to the wrong meds. And so of course, yeah. you know, she's a medical specialist. She was able to pinpoint that right away. But what this doctor told me to do is anytime you're getting medication, take a photo of the medication as well. And mm -hmm. keep that in your file as well. So you can make sure that what the doctor prescribed and what you were actually given are the exact same thing. And mm -hmm. that's happened to, um, and I have, I mean, hundreds of stories from um, medical um, office assistants who've actually caught those mistakes as well between um, the prescription that the doctor was given um, yes. or was giving to the patient and then, um, and it didn't actually match the right patients. And, yeah, so wow. and so it's so important to be on top of this. I mean, you have to be that investigator, but it's not hard. I mean, it's really about putting, you know, a and B together to get yep. C and then, you know, it's going to keep you safe. So what happened yes. after you have this, you catch this mistakes that says, you know, get an MRI done next year, but yep. you go back and say, no, no, I need this done every single year. So what yep. happened after this from the time? Yep. So then I did get yearly MRIs. Um, and then I was, I was pretty stable. I had symptoms of migraines. I, you know, still got my dizziness, but I had medications to, uh, to help me out with that. <clears throat> I think the biggest thing for me, actually, um, during that time period after my diagnosis was I had the physical symptoms, but a lot of it was managing and uh, sort of uh, negotiating the emotional side of things, living with something inside my head that wasn't supposed to be there. Mm -hmm. um, like a ticking time bomb was actually a really hard uh, journey to try and figure out. Um, and also just navigating the healthcare system as well. Um, after I really had to figure out that I needed to take more ownership because I needed to figure out uh, what was going on. I'd had my first opinion with the neurosurgeon. But given that Vancouver is it's a relatively small city uh, and my tumor is a very, very rare brain tumor, uh, I decided I wanted a second opinion on this. And by second opinion, some people always think that means you don't trust the doctor that's got given you the opinion. And I, I think that's not true. What it means is you're looking for a sense of 
uh, surety. Um, and, you know, when we buy a house or we shop for a car, we don't go to one place. We shop around, we look for the best value, the best deals and opinions, but this is our life. So we should absolutely be doing more than one opinion on it. So I got a second opinion. Um, and was which, that easy to ha- get it to happen? Like, I know for a lot of my clients, it's not easy because once they get into the BC Cancer Agency and they get assigned their oncologist, it's like, that's your oncologist. You don't get anyone else. So how did you go about getting a second opinion? So what I actually did was I, I actually got, I got three opinions. So I got my first one. I got a second opinion through my GP who got one at a different hospital, uh, a bigger hospital, which was great. And then I actually decided that um, I wanted to get one at, uh, as I said, outside of Vancouver. Uh, So I looked for North America, what is a top neurosurgical facility in North America that would see as many of my potential brain tumor walking through the door? So what neurosurgeon would have the most experience? Because that's what you want. You want someone who has the most experience, the most number of cases that would see as many probabilities of your condition as possible. So that's what I found. And that was Johns Hopkins uh, in uh, Baltimore in the US. So I did a remote consult. And that's where, you know, you send your records, you send a copy of your MRIs over there, and then you do a remote consult. You get allocated a a neurosurgeon according to your condition and their experience with your condition. And you had to pay for this out of pocket, I'm assuming. Yes. Yes. And I mean, that was what you have to do. Um, And that was a decision we made where we thought, no, I think this this is definitely worthwhile to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what we did. And all the opinions concurred with each other. And, you know, after doing that, I went, okay, I'm good. I've done my homework. I feel happy and now I'm good. And then that was, that was it. And relieving that stress off your body. We know that stress suppresses the immune system. We know that stress triggers inflammation, yes. um, chronic inflammation. And all of that um, does not support, it does not help the disease. No process at all. So no, I think absolutely. doing anything and everything to relieve all that additional stress is important. And if you have to pay out of pocket for it, then you have right. to. And some people might say, you know, I'm looking at this beautiful woman sitting in this beautiful house. She might have the money to do that. But what would you say to people who potentially don't have the money to do that? I think I agree with you. I mean, I think it's for me, I, I, I think after this whole experience, I've said to my husband, you know, I think for us, when we put money away for savings, I feel like I'm putting some away for my health care and some away for my savings because um, sometimes access to health care can be challenging. Yeah. So I think sometimes it's a sense of we need to manage that aspect. Um, for people who don't have that, I think that that's very, very, very challenging. Because yeah. we know things like getting access to, you know, wait times and all of that, it's not easy to get access to a second specialist, let alone a first specialist sometimes. So, um, I, yeah, it's, that's, that's not an easy uh, dilemma to be in. It really isn't. Yeah. And we help people through that by, you know, saying I've had clients, you know, who had a second car that they didn't really need. Um, and they've sold that to be able to, you know, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, we do live in Canada. We have the opportunity to do fundraisers. We can ask our family and friends and community. We can go to church groups. I mean, there's, 
lots of ways to do it. I think in Canada, one of the challenges is with our socialized medical system. A lot of people Mm -hmm. just like to put their hands up and be passive about their entire health experience and say, well, the Canadian government and healthcare system has me. But at the end of the day, their leading cause of death is medical error. So at the end of the day, they don't truly have you. So you have to advocate for yourself and find out the ways to go and do that. And I, um, and I think it's important to take those steps into your own hands. So then yes. take us through the next phase of your journey. So uh, it was about, I'm trying to think, uh, well, one of the, one of the next uh, issues or challenges that I faced was about... Um, it was about a year, 18 months after my diagnosis, when I had been told early MRIs were my standard of care, that I went in to see my neurologist and, um, you know, he said, this is great. You're looking stable and stable with a brain tumor is a good thing. People think, oh, I don't know, but it's a good thing. It means there's no sign of progression, no impact on your brain. So I was like, this is great. So he said, you don't need MRIs anymore. There's no need for MRIs anymore. So I was like, okay. And at first I thought this was good. And then I walked out. And then I thought, oh, hang on a second. This is contrary to everything that I know and everything that I believe and everything that I've educated myself on. Because by now, I've read just about anything that I can find um, online. I've read, I'm very well educated on my condition. And I'm thinking, this is not right because I know I need to have them every single year. And my second and third opinions have said the same thing. Yeah. So that was a... a a sort of a vote of confidence that went down in my opinion um, in my uh, individual who had told me this and who had stopped my medical standard of care in this area. So I went to my second opinion who continued my care in that area because I had a lack of confidence in the doctor who had canceled my MRI. So I think it's important to make sure that when you have a, a difference of opinion um, or something doesn't work is to feel that as a patient that you have some power to move and negotiate because it is your life and it is your body and your health and it's really important to do so. So mm-hmm. I did continue my MRIs as a standard of care, which was really important. Now, okay, so I love that you did that and I know from my own experience with my daughter, um, the doctors in Emerge wrote me off as a hypochondriac mother, like really like overprotective and you want to run all these unnecessary tests because I demanded an x-ray for my daughter because at night we heard that her lungs, we could hear her lungs filling up with fluid and gurgling. Mm but it wasn't present in the day. But the doctor's like, I don't hear it, so I'm not going to give you an x-ray. And I had to put my foot down and say, absolutely not. Like, I need this. And it's a fine line because you do go through those feelings of like, am I just being hyper paranoid? Like, is the research that I'm doing legitimate? Um, you know, what do you, so what would you say to people? And in, for me, in that case, I was like, no, I heard it. My husband heard it. I'm not crazy. Do the x-ray. And they did. And sure enough, found that she had pneumonia. And this was two days before the meningitis diagnosis. Um, yes. But they just said, oh, it's, it's pneumonia. There we go. Done. Here's the medications. So mm. what would you say to people in that situation? Like, how do we learn to trust ourselves in this day? Yes where we rely on other people to have the knowledge and education. It is very hard because I definitely had those moments where I too felt like I was perhaps being looked at as a bit of a hypochondriac, perhaps too uh, uh, thinking that, you know, my brain was swelling, my tumor was growing when it wasn't, or my symptoms were related to my tumor and they weren't. So I definitely can understand that feeling and those uh, concerns. 
I think what is important is, <clears throat> there's two things. The one is that as a patient or as a caregiver, um, you live 24 seven in your body. And um, the healthcare team that is very much trying to help you is not 24 seven in your body. They are there for the 15 minutes or the one hour, whatever they're spending with you, assessing you. Uh, and so it's important for us as patients to know and have the confidence to articulate those symptoms and say that they, they are there and these are the, the issues that I'm having. I think the, the fine line comes is when we feel like we're being treated like a hypochondriac, it tends to escalate us and we're like, Whoa. and then, then we get seen as more of a hypochondriac than we actually are. So that's where that communication piece really comes in and needs to be really strong as a patient where we're like, listen, I, I know that this is what's happening. This has been happening for the last week and make sure that that communication is strong and solid to the doctor. Um, I think that's really key, but I, I do know that feeling of where you're feeling like you even wonder to yourself, you're like, am I, am I thinking these things in my head? Because you know, but I know that feeling and um, sometimes it has completely landed up where it's been very valid and a very serious medical issue and you have to stand by that. Yeah. Um, there's a really good book that I read that helped me tremendously. I read it years ago yeah. and it's called How Doctors Think. And it, oh, really, yeah, and it really lends itself to, um, you know, letting you know that doctors are human beings too. And they make the same um, amount of errors at the same rate that anybody else does, despite yeah. the expertise that they have. And it's because they're human. They see patterns yeah. to break those patterns. And you really hit the nail on the head by saying, number one, you have to be convicted in how you're feeling. And then the language that you're using is mm -hmm. really important. So if you say, I feel really strongly about this. Um, and one way that I know helped my, um, my daughter, and this, it seems like my daughter's always sick, but she definitely has something going on that the doctors have still not, even though she's 14, have not mm -hmm. been quite able to pinpoint. But when she was four years old, I knew she had strep throat because I had gotten strep throat just the week before, but she didn't present with the same symptoms. So instead of her having, you know, the white swelly tonsils, um, she had a neck that was swollen out to here as a four-year-old. Her, she had fevers that were behaving in different patterns than is normal for strep throat. Mm. So the doctors didn't want to swab her throat because they and it's like a 25 cent test. Yeah, um, exactly. And they didn't want to swap her throat. So for four days, I kept on again seeing multiple doctors and the same doctor I saw multiple times. And, um, and I said, and, and this is finally at the end of the day, um, like one o'clock in the morning when I took her into Merge and I said, I'm not dealing with another spike in her fever. I said, and I'm not leaving here. I know yeah. something's wrong with her. Yeah. It's, again, and I think this sentence saying, tell me why it's not strep throat. How do you know that it's not? And that was yes. what stopped her. And she actually, after the lab results came back the next day, she rushed them. Um, she called me up twice to apologize. And she said, you know what? Never again will I doubt a mother's um, intuition. Intuition, yes. And this is the part. So we have to form that language. Yeah. And we train people to write your questions down and also yes. write your statements down and write your feelings down before you go into yeah. the doctors. Because you only have about... Yeah. 18 seconds before your doctor diagnoses you. And that's what how yeah. doctors think shows it. Doctors will take one look at you and diagnose yep. within 18 seconds of walking in the door. So your language is really, every word you say is really important. Yes, so then, totally is. So then now here you are, um, you've gone back, you told that it's stable, you don't need to come back for MRIs. What happens after this? So then I, as I said, I go to my second opinion who reinstates uh, early MRIs. And about two years after my diagnosis, um, I 
I get a, a vertigo attack again. The same as the one before, which prompted my diagnosis, room spinning. And I'm like, oh, here we go again. Um, I take my medication. That's okay. But the next day I get this intense migraine. And by now I'm used to migraines because I have them. I take my medication, but nothing touches sides on this one. And so the next day I go to my GP and I'm like, this is, this is a bad one. I need to figure out what's going on. You know, can we change my medication? So she gives me something else. Nothing touches sides on this one. So the next day um, I phone her and she said, yeah, let's try it, try this and do that. And so we tweak my meds a bit more. And I think it was by about day four, she's like, no, you need to go to the ER because I want to, oh no, go to your neurologist. Let's get you checked out. So I go to the neurologist and um, the locum is there and she looks at me, checks everything out. And I say, listen, I'm concerned. Is it my tumor? Is it growing? The consensus was no, it's um, labyrinthitis, which is when you get a, you know, an ear, it's not an ear infection, but it's a disturbance in your, your vestibular system. Exactly. So I was like, okay, that sort of, sort of made sense to me. But anyway, she said, if it doesn't get better, we'll chat again. So I went back home. Migraine still happening, not resolving. Uh, so I went back to my GP the next day. She's like, this is not right. If it doesn't resolve the next morning, I want you in the ER and I want you telling them you want a CT scan done immediately. So I'm like, okay. I wake up the next morning. <laughs> Nothing's happened. Still got the migraine. So okay. I'm off to the ER department now. And I arrive there and I tell them, I have a brain tumor. I've had vertigo and dizziness. And I've had a migraine for seven days now that is not related. My GP has tried all different medications. I've seen my neurologist and I need a CT scan. That's exactly what I told them. Amazing. And... Um, they said, okay, that's fine. They take me through and they phoned my neurologist who I saw three days earlier, same locum. And she says to them, it's okay. She doesn't need a CT scan. She just needs to have, give her migraine meds, IV, see if it resolves and she can go home. And so I'm like, I'm a bit, I'm totally zoned out now because, you know, I have my IV meds, I have all of that. And, um, they're like, no, you can go home after this. So my husband comes to fetch me. He's like, why have they not done a CT scan? And I said, I know. I asked them. I told them what I needed and everything. And he's like, okay, this is now past a joke. So by then I actually emailed my second opinion. And I said, this is the situation I'm having. I'm really struggling. And he said, you need an MRI immediately. This is no longer a joke. You have to have one done. And... So I did have one done and it showed my brain was actually swollen because my brain tumor had doubled in size. And did that's you, why. Did you pay for the MRI? I did. You did. Because by now I had had my neurologist, my visit to the neurologist had told me I had an ear issue. The visit to the ER, they had not you know, I, I stated exactly what was needed, what my GP had said was needed. They just reverted to the neurologist who'd said IV medication, let her go home, no CT scan is required, even when I'd followed up with a doctor afterwards asking why. So um, I went back to my GP who said, yep, let's send you private because otherwise it's, it's obviously something's missing in the communication here. And um, yes, 
And so that was the story. And uh, by then, I was, my words were mumbled. I was uh, struggling with, my legs were starting to get weak because I had a condition, hydrocephalus, you know, the swelling of the brain, the cerebrospinal fluid was blocked. So I needed brain surgery and that's what I had. I had brain surgery to remove the brain tumor to allow the spinal fluid to move. And um, yeah, I was, I was lucky because by the time I had my surgery, I was in ICU uh, the night before. And uh, yes, I'm, I'm glad I made it through. So that was my, my story. And here I am to live to tell a tale. <laughs> that is amazing. And I mean, we, hindsight is twenty twenty, and yes. never predict what would have happened. But if you had been like so many other people who really just put their, you know, put their health and handed over to the, their health practitioner and you hadn't gone and paid for the MRI, like yes. where do you think you would be now? I wouldn't be here because I would have come home. I would have gone upstairs and I was tired and I would have gone to sleep and I would not have woken up. Exactly. Now, you know, and this is a scary part because I was in exactly that same position at, you know, 2 a.m. in the morning in Emerge when my daughter had meningitis and the doctor said, just go home and still yeah. no answers. And that same week, there was a child in Surrey that um, had died, another young teenager who mm. died of meningitis. And mm. I, to this day, I want to reach out to that family and see if I can find them. And I mean, not to bring things up, but I'm just so curious, you know, did, you know, did the, maybe they do what... It, what they knew to do, which was to trust the doctors. And, mm -hmm. to, um, you know, and it's a tricky situation here because I can imagine medical practitioners listening to this saying that, yeah, but you know what, 90% of the people or 80, whatever the statistic is, will come through and they have dizziness and nausea and, you know, and, and it is just an ear condition or it is just, you yeah. know, a yeah. virus or flu. But you had a brain tumor already. Mm -hmm. And you still couldn't get the treatment that you needed when you needed it um, without having to yep. go above and beyond and pay for it. And that's the scary thing, I think, for a lot of people. Um, but I think that the thing that people have to remember is that if you start now, like even if you start now with, you know, a chronic condition, like let's say you mm -hmm. have type 2 diabetes and the doctor said that, you know, you're going to be on these meds for the rest of your life. You can put your team approach, what you did in the TED talk into action right now. Yes. And an example of this is the other day I walked into our restaurant and there was this beautiful woman sitting there eating and um, I was puttering about and she came up to me and she said, you know, are you the woman who wrote this book? And she was holding our Eat Real Teal book and I said, yes. And she just started crying mm -hmm. and she said, you know, this has saved my life. And I said, well, it only came out a few months ago. Um, tell me your story. And so this young woman, 23, she had had endometriosis since she was mm -hmm. 14 years old. And, you know, her doctors have said, okay, surgery and meds are going to be your prognosis. That's what you're going to live with for the rest of your yeah. life. And she believed them. But she didn't go beyond and do any, you know, education. So the first thing is gathering your lab results, right? You say it's the, um, the, the T yeah. stands for... The T track. Yeah, T track. Yeah everything yes exactly track everything and the e stands for educate yourself that's right and so you know but she didn't do those two things mm -hmm. um the a stands for ask questions as you were saying write down all the questions before you go in and that you ask as many questions as possible make sure you prioritize them you know what is my most important what i want to ask make sure you have them whenever you go into an appointment yeah and one thing that I would add to that too is what is the outcome that you want? Do you just yeah. want to be symptom free? If you do, then that's great. Your doctor can prescribe yep. meds and surgery and everything. Yep. 
Um, yeah. Do you want to actually see your d- disease reverse um, mm-hmm. through a variety of different meds? Like, or not meds, but um, health protocols. I mean, it could be you yeah. know, mindfulness is wonderful for the body. It could be diet. It could be, yes. um, you know, if you want to try and exercise your way out of that, I mean, give it a shot. Like, do whatever it takes. Find the person who's going to help you get the outcome that you want in the ways that you want. Yes. Um, and so this is where I say, you know, also write down the outcome. And this is where sometimes, you know, we teach our, our clients, we say, fire your doctor, because at the end of the day, you're paying for them, your tax dollars paying for them. Um, and yeah. at the end of the day, if they're not giving you the results and helping you get them in the ways that you want, fire them, go find somebody else. Mm-hmm. And in some places in the world, it's almost impossible to do that because most people like, don't even get to, you know, you wait years to even get a GP. Um, yeah. And so it is tough, but you know what? There's always someone in the world who can help you. I know there is. And I mean, I I have a fantastic GP and I think, I mean, working on your relationship with a doctor, any doctor, it's, it's, it's like a relationship with a friend, with anyone. It requires effort from both sides. It requires communication and connection and honesty and uh, just that transparency. It really does. Um, So I think that's important to note. It really is. Mm -hmm. Uh, But as, as you said, with, with patients and, and an important point that you brought up earlier is that, any part of the healthcare team, but especially doctors are, are humans, right? And even the medical error happens, it's often a systemic issue. So it's things because there's lack of communication, there's lack of resources. There's so many other things going on in a system that's fraught with challenges like the healthcare system is one of the most complicated in the world. So it's, it, yes, it may be individual, but it's often a systemic challenge. So, um, but finding that right individual to connect with at a personal level is really, really critical, right? It is critical. And I find your book is so complimentary. It's almost the book that I would encourage people to read before they read my book, because Mm. um, just the point, you know, the E, educate yourself, um, ask the questions. And then there's the M, it's how to manage it. Yes. Management of your health and your future. And that's exactly what this woman in our restaurant did. She started to educate herself. She started to tell people she had a condition. And then one person said, Hey, you know what? You could reverse this by changing your diet. And she did not know that was possible. She educated herself more. It took three weeks for her to get off all the meds when she lost her diet. It was the first time since she was 14 that she's been pain-free from her endometriosis. And I've had clients who fully reversed their condition. I mean, they've never had to get another surgery or be on meds from the moment they started. And so that's the wonderful thing is that you can get results. Everything's going to take effort. It doesn't matter which way you do it, whether it's exercise, diet, taking medications. There's always going to be a price to pay, usually effort, time, um, money, um, putting your pride aside. I mean, there's so many different things that it's going to be, but it is going to take work and we have to do that. So then how are you doing now? I'm curious about that. Now I'm doing very well. Uh, I'm very blessed. I mean, there's always, there's always, uh, I mean, when someone, uh, you know, you have surgery on your brain, it's interesting that some people can have a massive surgery and be fine. And some people have a smaller surgery and not fine. Um, I had uh, aseptic meningitis after my surgery as well. So it took me, it took me, gosh, almost two years to recover until I could get back to work. Um, so longer than I expected, (laughs) I didn't realize it would take that long. Um, but your brain heals in its own time. It's really quite a marvelous organ. Uh, but you know, there's some things that I can't do to the extent that I used to do anymore. My stamina is not quite what it used to be. So I have to be mindful of certain things. Uh, but you know what, when one door closes, I always find if you, if you're looking for it, another door opens. 
And uh, that has been for me in the most beautiful and wonderful way where, for example, I I wrote a book. I mean, hey, I would never have thought I'd write a book or two. And uh, I've been able to uh, do things like write and blog and be a speaker and and go to wonderful patient uh, events. And I'm now like a patient advocate. And uh, I work with the Canadian Medical Association. I've just been part of their patient advisory uh, group, The Patient Voice. And all these wonderful opportunities where I get to work, take my experience as a patient and work positively to, for the benefit of the, the healthcare system, the benefit of other patients. And I'm, I'm like, that, that's definitely doors opening. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm very, very lucky that I have that, those opportunities that have come out of uh, an experience that uh, at times was definitely challenging. And sometimes, you know, as I said, there's some things that I can't do to the same extent, but I, you know, yes, you go through those and you grieve those, but that was, that was a while, a long time back for me. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm lucky in the place that I'm at. Yeah. Because you're alive. That's the thing is you are in the present. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And um, I love the story. We were talking about it earlier, just before we started recording, about how you actually wrote your book. Because did you were you a writer before that? Oh no, totally yeah. not. <laughs> Can you share a story about how you wrote the book and where that absolutely feeling absolutely. So after my brain surgery, as I was saying, it took a lot longer than I expected to recover, and. Um, I remember one day, you know, I I would be sleeping 16 hours a day. I could get out of bed. My body felt like lead. My brain, my short-term memory was gone. I had post-it notes all over the place. And um, I remember just feeling whether it was angry from the misdiagnoses, that I was tired, I was depressed. I was like, when is this going to end? And so I was like, I need to put all these feelings somewhere. I had a, my husband was so supportive, but I was just like, Ugh, I need to get this out. So I did. I sat in front of my laptop and I pounded away on the keyboard and um, it was one page became three pages, became 30 pages and I kept on typing and it felt so good just to get my feelings and all that stuff that was inside mm-hmm. out of me. And um, it was about nine months after my surgery Actually, that a friend of mine said to me, you know, how are you doing? And because by then, you know, you sort of look better and most people have forgotten you've had brain surgery. And um, she said, how are you doing? And I said, um, I'm okay. But it's, you know, it's a bit of a struggle with all these, you know, one day you're doing well and the next day you can't get out of bed. And she said, you know, you should, have you thought about seeing a clinical psychologist? You know, maybe she can help you through some of the mental stuff. And I thought, that's a really good idea. So I did. I went and saw a clinical psychologist and she actually diagnosed me with PTSD because given the run of events that I'd had with my misdiagnosis, the rush to surgery, the medical error and everything, I actually had a film reel playing in my mind every time I went to sleep of all the events leading up to my surgery and the rush and the error. It kept on going through my head the whole time. And so she said to me, how have you been dealing with all of this? And I said, well, I've been putting all my thoughts into, you know, I've been journaling. And she said, that's great. I love that. And she said, you know, you should think about one day maybe turning those thoughts into a book because it might help somebody else in your situation. And I thought, that's a great idea. I love that. And so I did. I, I started changing how I was writing into a book format. And 
eventually it became my first book, which was Two Steps Forward, Embracing Life with a Brain Tumor. That's incredible. And then you went on to write a second book. Yes, I did. And then I wrote my second book, which is um, Activate, which is, I think I got it here, which is Activate, this one. Nice. Um, And that was off the back of my TEDx talk, Activate, How to Save Your Life in a Complex Healthcare System. Uh, And that's really talking about the team approach, which we just spoke about, and how to really, and it weaves the whole story of my journey uh, how to really put your health in your own hands and how important it is. Cause it might not be your life. It might be, you know, your, your child's life, your parents' life, exactly. just somebody or friend's life where you might just be able to give them a, a hint or like, Oh, Hey, you should really ask your doctor about that. Or, Hey, you know, have you looked that up on the internet or have you asked your doctor where you could find information on that? It's asking that one extra question or asking or doing, finding that one extra record that you haven't found or following up on a test result. That's an important one. If your doctor hasn't called you, it doesn't mean everything's good. (laughs) And Um, you know, that is the biggest piece right there, I think. Yes. A lot of times people think, well, if there's something wrong, they'll just call me, right? No, No, not at all. Not the case. And this happened to um, one of my friend's aunts. And this is when I was first learning about the nutritional therapy that I teach. And so I hadn't started working with a ton of clients, but you know, she called me and she said, you know, my aunt's just been, um, she's been sick and she's gone in for a lot of lab results and they've done a biopsy. And, and I said, okay, well, let me know how it goes. And then, Mm. you know, we can try, I can try and like help. And she was back East in Ontario. Um, and I said, you know, we'll do our best to try and help her. Mm-hmm. So then a few months went by and I was like, okay, I haven't heard anything. So then, um, and of course I get a phone call um, from my girlfriend who said, you know, my aunt just got her diagnosis. And I was like, wow, three months, four, it was almost nice. four months later. And I said, you know, what, what is it? And they said, oh, well, you know, she had, um, you know, stage three cancer, but now it's stage four cancer. And I said, how did that happen? Mm-hmm. Um, and they said, well, cause the doctor went on vacation back in December and forgot the whole entire medical team forgot to call her to tell her that her test results had been in, in oh. December and that she had an aggressive cancer. Um, and by the oh. time they told her in March, um, you know, that was it. It had progressed. Exactly. And, you know, she was just puttering about waiting, you know, thinking, well, the doctors are going to call me if there's something. And, but I've heard that story over and over and over again since. And it's so important. You follow up with those test results and you get them to explain things. And this is exactly what happened with my daughter. I did follow up with the test results. I even went in and had the appointment and I said, you know, help me understand why her leukocytes are high and her monocytes are low. And, um, or I can't even remember which order it was in. And the doctor's like, Oh, that's nothing. It's probably that she just has Mm -hmm. an infection. And that was on day one, five days before her meningitis diagnosis. And looking back, I, you know, and I mean, it was just a little bit of data. Um, he wasn't really able to explain it, kind of brushed it off. And, um, but looking back and it's, you know, again, hindsight's twenty twenty. When we mm-hmm. looked at those five days, we realized, oh my gosh, of course it was the start of something. Um, yes. And now I know to, you know, take action on that first day and whatever it is, whether it's supporting her immune system even more aggressively, getting a second opinion, asking for more tests, whatever it is. It's so important. And the doctors weren't going to call me to tell me about her lab results because to them, they just felt like it was nothing, even though she did have, you know, pieces in the high and pieces in the low. So I can't stress that enough. Um, One of the things as well that we teach is, and which is very similar to your management, and I love the team approach, that acronym, because Mm -hmm. it's similar to what we teach. We talk about building a whole health team. And Mm -hmm. what that means is 
you know, it's great to have a chiropractor, a traditional Chinese medicine doctor, a massage therapist, a nutritionist, um, to have a GP, to have a specialist, to have an endocrinologist. And people might say, well, I don't need an endocrinologist. Nothing's wrong with my hormones. No, but there will come a point in your life when there is. And you Mm -hmm. want to know who the best of the best endocrinologists are out there. And, you know, and also have two people listed because you might call and they might say, sorry, I can't get an appointment for two months because we're too popular and busy. Well, that's great. You have a backup. Who's your number two? And your number two is going to be, you know, you're going to regard them in the same light as your number one. And just because we're talking about the brain today, I just want to bring up one book. I don't know if you read it, but Brain on Fire. Yes. 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 Excellent. And I think that some people might, you know, it's a pretty, it's a very dramatic story about this yeah. young woman who has this brain condition. It's basically encephalitis. It's swelling yes. inflammation in the brain. But, you know, she would have ended up in an institution because they wanted yes. to write her up, write her off as, you know, being either bipolar, schizophrenic, even though they didn't have a formal diagnosis, but they just couldn't figure out what was wrong with her. So they were going to yeah. do what they've done to thousands of people before her just stick her in an institution and dope her up and dumb her down and all of these things because they didn't know. And it was actually a medical practitioner. The family had to go out of exactly what you did to get that mm-hmm. second and third opinion and say, yes. please, do you know of anyone who might be able to diagnose my daughter? And they found someone who actually just three weeks earlier had found the antidote to her disease. Yes. Right? I remember it was amazing. And that is what is truly amazing. And also what her story is so similar to yours because she, what she did, I mean, she was a writer, she was a journalist Yes. Um, and, but it took her two years to recover just like you. Yeah. Yeah. She had to learn how to walk and talk again. I mean, mm. she, this woman's story is incredible. They've now made a movie about her. That's but right. The other thing is that she wrote about her story and then it got translated into thousands of languages around the world and helped to save so many people's lives and even pull people who were in institutions and allowed their doctors to say, well, what if we just tested this person as a result of this woman's story? And, um, and they did, and they were able to administer the right treatment. And so this is one of the things I know, and I'm so perplexed by this, that when people um, treat their illnesses and they come out alive on the other end. A lot of people don't share their stories. Mm, mm. past it. And it's so important that we tell these stories because yes. it's the only way to also support the medical system because they can't yes. do it on their own. They're not bloggers. They're not writers. And most doctors, I mean, once they write the story of their patient into the patient's file, that gets closed forever. And a lot of doctors don't get to see the outcome. And so it's important to go back as well to the medical team that was working on your case and tell them what happened in your particular case. And I know you, and this is the part that I want to finish on because you went back and I think there was a medical review done on one, if not a few of the people that were treating you, right? Yes, correct. Yes. So um, after my uh, surgery and after everything had happened, as I said, one of the feelings I had was anger because um, as a mother of a, by then anyway, a six-year-old child and a wife, I was cross. I was like, I could have come home and gone to sleep and I, that would be it. They would be left without me. And I was cross that this had happened and I didn't want it to happen to anybody else. And I'm like, how do I do this? I know the medical system is complicated, but I'm like, how do I ensure this does not happen to anybody else? And so you know, I think one of the biggest things is, is that we know that medical error is the third, you know, leading cause of death in the United States and Canada. And that's after cardiovascular disease and cancer. But one of the biggest things is, is that no system becomes truly better without knowing where the faults and the issues and the, the, the challenges lie. And the way to do that is to report where the challenges lie. So that's what I did. 
I did a complaint with the BC uh, Board of Surgeons and Physicians, the College of Surgeons and Physicians, sorry, the exact name eludes me. Uh, and so it's a very complicated process, let me tell you. So trying to do that like a year, oh, nine months after my surgery was a challenge, but I did it. I was, I was committed. Um, and I followed through with that and I got the results on the board review. I think, I don't know, a year, 18 months after my, uh, surgery and they did actually find uh, fault with one of the doctors and, you know, they did apologize for it. And basically what happens is, you know, that gets put into the doctor's file. Um, but basically it was that there should have been more due care taken with someone with my medical history. Uh, the fact that I had a brain tumor, more imaging should have been requested. Uh, as we were saying, you know, I think it's the sense of looking at each patient and uh, going, this patient does warrant extra imaging, extra testing based off that patient's history. Uh, but as we said, everybody is, you know, doctors are human after all. Um, and people do make mistakes. Unfortunately, in this case, it, the mistake has a bit of a higher uh, loss. You know, it's, we're dealing with lives. But after, you know, when that came back, for me, it was like, it was a chapter in the book was closed. Mm -hmm. I felt like I'd been heard. I felt like I'd been seen. Um, and it was a huge like burden off my shoulders yeah. because I was like, okay, I've done my bit. I've been a patient. I've, I've done what I needed to do and I can move on now. And that was really important for me to do. So as part of your healing as well, would you say for this? Yes, yes. absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But I think also just knowing that, um, not, not through just placement of blame, but just my contribution towards assisting the medical system in knowing where issues lie and where, you know, one can move forward and making a positive uh, effort in, in getting the healthcare system where it needs to be. I think that's important. Yeah. You took action and you continue to be an activist yeah. for your own health, but also yeah. for other people and yeah. also for that, that doctor as well, because at the end of the day, I think we truly yeah. want to know when we've made an error so we don't make yeah. it again. Yeah, of um, course. Yeah, and this reminds me so much of, I love um, Dr. Victor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. And, mm -hmm. you know, he's a man who lived through the Holocaust and survived. Yes. But, you know, one of the reasons he said that so many, the people who survived, why they did is because they took an active role. Um, yeah. They weren't just a prisoner. They just weren't a victim of the Holocaust. But, you know, they chose to make meaning of their situation. And mm -hmm. so what that did is it made it so that they weren't a victim in that they were, it didn't have to be all about trauma. It didn't have to be all about um, the depths of sadness and, and torture and starvation, but it actually, they got to make meaning out of every situation. And it actually would, by doing that, um, mm -hmm. there was also good moments, um, you yeah. know, which might seem absurd. You have to read the book to truly understand this, yeah. but he's a psychologist yeah. who really dives deep into that. And when we make meaning of our experiences, um, you know, and also when we become of service to others, that yes. helps us as well through the trauma. And it sounds like you did exactly yes. what, you know, he um, suggests people do. Mm -hmm. It has been such a pleasure chatting with you. I mean, your story is truly remarkable. Um, you know, you have done everything that you absolutely need to do to um, be able to take care of your health and to also save your life. And you did that, you know, 
I mean, it sounds to me like you did everything perfectly, even though you were going through it for the first time and you had to figure it mm -hmm. out and you had to navigate this really complex system. Um, and, you know, I am so grateful that you are here today to share the story because I know your story has probably um, has already helped so many people and it's going to continue to save people's lives. So thank you so much for being here with us. No, thank you. It's been a pleasure chatting to you. It sounds like, as I said, we completely have so much in common with what you've been talking about, what I'm talking about. So it's a pleasure to be able to connect with you because I feel like we definitely on the same wavelength and talking heart to heart here. Yes, no, it's been really wonderful. Um, the one, I mean, I come from a plant-based world. And so the one question that I've been curious about is just to know, did you ever read um, or watch, it's called Anti-Cancer or The C Word? Um, it's a documentary. No, but I, I've seen it. It's on Netflix. Is that right? Please watch it. Um, I will. I'm yeah. totally going to. Please watch that. And also, um, yeah. and it's about Dr. David, David Serban Schreiber's life. He was a neurologist who yes. didn't, um, one of his subjects didn't show up um, for an MRI as part of this study that he was conducting. So the yeah. other neuroscientist said, hey, David, just hop in the MRI machine. You could be the subject. And when he did, they found this massive brain tumor. And oh, wow. It was, and he came out and I mean, his team members did not know what to say to him, but they had to tell him like, Hey, listen, you have this brain tumor and the, um, the outcome is like five year survival with it. Yeah. If you know, and that's with surgery and the medication and everything, um, and chemo treatment. So he dove into all of this research to mm -hmm. find out, well, and I love just sharing this story. So please, um, it, his book is called anti-cancer and new way of life. It's yeah. a brilliant book, but the one piece that I love to share with people is that he did one thing that was so easy to do. He just looked at the um, outcome of the disease. So what is the prognosis um, related to the diagnosis that he had? And he looked at the bell curve. And on the bell curve, you said, what you see is that, wow, people with this diagnosis, you know, there's going to be a few people that drop off. You know, they die yep. right away. Um, yes. And then there's going to be a whole group of people that die, you know, within five years of this diagnosis. But always on the bell curve, there's like one or two or three people that make it to the very end that live like 20, 30, 40, 50 years, or they die a natural death, even yes. though they have the same disease. So he made a conscious decision. He's like, I'm going to be that guy. I'm going to be that one. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And that's what he did. So that took him into step two of your team approach, which is the education. So he started to educate himself and saw that, you know, the treatments that they had within the existing medical system, you know, weren't actually going to get him to that place. And mm -hmm. so he chose a treatment plan for himself, but that also included a diet. And he okay. started incorporating all these beautiful dietary changes. And, you know, and he attributes that, you know, the fact that he was able to live an additional 22 years with this wow. terrible diagnosis um, as a result of those dietary changes. And just some things that he says to do is, you know, you need to eat those 10 fistfuls of vegetables and produce every single day. Um, you need to have a diversity of 30 different fruits and vegetables in your diet every single different week. So it's about the abundance and the diversity. And then of course he goes into stress, you know, how to manage that in your life and a whole bunch of other wonderful things. But wow. I just like to share that story with people in our audience and our listeners. And yeah, I'm well. definitely going to, I'm definitely going to, uh, that's going to be some uh, holiday season watching for me for sure. Yes. Okay. Wonderful. Thank you for uh, sharing that. Yes, of course. Um, and just let me know how it goes with that. And I'm sure we're going to chat again about this because there's so yes. much in your book that we didn't even get to cover in both your books actually. Um, but again, thank you for being here. How can people find you and reach you? Can you let them know? Yeah, sure. On my website, which is twosteps.ca. Uh, and then they can find out all my links. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. Um, I've got lots of blogs. I've got videos. So they can find all the information on twosteps.ca. 
fantastic. And like I said before, we're going to put all those links at the bottom of this podcast so that awesome. you'll be able to um, buy Claire's books, um, watch mm-hmm. her TED Talk, dive yep. into her website. And so yep. you can start to become um, active in your healthcare management. Absolutely. Okay. Thanks, Claire. A pleasure. Have an incredible day. Absolutely. You too. Cheers for now then. Bye. for being here today. Hope you enjoyed this episode and please let us know if you have any questions or if you want to provide feedback on any of our shows, contact us by emailing us at info at richerhealth.ca. And you can also subscribe to our newsletter to receive information about our upcoming events to learn more about the healing retreats that we offer at our Nutrition and Detox Wellness Center and to get a copy of our latest book titled Eat Real to Heal, of course. Lastly, if you want one of us to do the cooking for you, just come visit us at the Green Mustache Organic Cafe in your neighborhood.